Welcome to Policy Matters. I'm Franz Boucher. And I'm Matt Dixon. And today we're going to be talking about the economics of happiness. Joining us is Dr. George McCarran, who's a senior lecturer in economics at the University of Sussex. George, you're one of the leading UK figures in the economics of happiness and well-being. We're quite keen in this second series of our show of Policy Matters to explore how economists can help inform other policy areas. We've previously focused a lot on education, social mobility, and in this series we'll be focusing on topics that perhaps people don't really associate with the traditional economists. So can you tell us a little bit, what is the economics of happiness? Why are economists looking at happiness? It doesn't sound like a very economics-y thing. I think the first reason, the fundamental reason, is that there's really nothing more important. Right? Hopefully it's, it's pretty much all, all of our fundamental goal is, is to figure out how we can be happy in some way or another. So if we can bring something to that, then I think we should. And actually, there are very few things where we've got better data. We actually have wonderful data on happiness. And and sometimes people, I think, find that surprising. You know, they say, well, wonderful data would be if you put people in MRI machines and you told us what was going on in the brain. You know, that would be objective and sciencey. And But actually, happiness is fundamentally subjective. And, and so you can't really do better than just ask people. And asking people is easy. And people find these questions relatively straightforward to answer. And they tend to give uh, pretty stable responses. And then with those responses, you can do all the things that economists are good at doing. And in particular, you know, bringing a, a real concern with causality and robust analysis and, and making sure that, you know, actually at the end of this process, policymakers can be confident in how far they can act on this. So uh, I would strongly say, you know, economists should be doing this. Certainly there are economists who are not so happy about the use of, of happiness in economics. You know, there's a line that we Ironically. should... <laughs> <laughs> indeed. We should, we should stick to our comparative advantage and, you know, look at frameworks within which people optimise subject constraints and so on. And yeah. I mean, that's sometimes we phrase, but we shouldn't abandon our comparative advantage. And actually, no one's asking economists to abandon doing that stuff. That stuff's also useful. Um, but there are places where happiness can give us another way to look at questions we're already looking at and sometimes even answer questions that actually just looking at people's behaviour or figuring out, you know, on, on what basis they make decisions will miss stuff. Well, I guess one sort of terminology that people often associate with economists is sort of money, right? The idea that we're looking at money mm-hmm. and there's a famous cliche that money can't buy happiness. There's something called the Easterling Paradox, Can you explain to our audience what that is and and why economists might be the right kind of people to try and resolve that paradox? Sure. And I mean, in terms of money can't buy happiness, I think, you know, the sort of the soundbite would be, well, it can't buy happiness, but it can probably buy you out of a certain amount of unhappiness. Mm. The Easterlin paradox comes back to a paper by by Richard Easterlin in the mid-70s titled, Does Economic Growth Improve the Human Lot? which for economists is sort of, you know, is the Pope Catholic? You know, it's sort of a fundamental assumption that actually human welfare is income and consumption. And if we have more income and consumption, then the human lot is improved. So this is sort of, in a sense, it's a brave question. But the reason he asks this question is that in looking uh, at data over time in one country, say you plot GDP, say for 30 years in the UK, you can do this and you, you plot happiness responses on that same chart, uh, you know, index them both at 100 and watch what they do. In the 30 years uh, from the mid-70s, uh, GDP rises enormously. Yeah. Uh, happiness, richer, absolutely, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Happiness essentially flatlines. 
Hmm. Uh, so answers to this question, you know, how satisfied do you feel with your yeah. life? Don't change at all. Now, you know, this isn't brilliant causal evidence because all other all kinds of other things are changing over those 30 years. Yeah. You know, there's changes in public services, there's all kinds of changes. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting just to see, mm, okay, this isn't the kind of straightforward correlation that we were expecting. Now, of course, there's other ways of looking at the, this relationship. You can look at different countries at one time, and there you do see a relationship. And, and, and particularly, you see that there are no really miserable rich countries. Right. There are quite a number of fairly happy poor countries um so you get a kind of a curve you get some points top left you get no one at the bottom right if, if we're plotting happiness going up vertically yeah, and income yeah. going along to the right this is probably not the place to describe yeah the short so, answer is no one's no one's really rich and really miserable on average but actually the, the most kind of powerful way to look at this and probably the way that economists like because it you know makes income look important and that's probably right if you look at one country at one time and you sort of you know let's split people up by income so let's mm-hmm. look at the bottom five percent the next five percent and so on up to the top five percent mm. uh, and look at how their income relates to their reported well-being then you see a very very strong relationship yeah. um, so income is a powerful predictor on the average um, so over time things don't seem to be changed but within that time point it does seem to be clear that rich people do tend to be happier on average that's right so within one country at one time income is a strong predictor of your life satisfaction um and actually, the way that you look at this is almost sometimes politicised too. So if you if you plot that with income on a log scale, mm. then you get a perfect straight line. And you know, Institute for Economic Affairs, for example, publishes it that way and says, let's just keep making everyone richer and richer. This happiness stuff, there's no yeah. point in that. On the other hand, if you plot it uh, just with income going up, uh, you know, linearly, um, then you actually you know you see this curve. You see it's a it's a very definitely log like relationship. So the more you've got, the more you need to become equivalently happy uh, again so equivalent, equivalent each, happiness boost each extra bit of income increases your happiness by smaller and smaller amounts the more income that you've got yeah, yeah. essentially you know, if you, you want to take a certain amount of happiness that's going to take a percentage of your income to get yeah. uh, and obviously if you've got a lot of money already that's a large amount and so that that's potentially a kind of a good argument for redistribution we can take money from people at the very top of the distribution and it probably makes very little difference to their happiness but that same amount of money would make a huge difference to people right, right at the bottom yeah um, but in any case, this this difference between that really strong relationship within a country, yeah. you know, set against very little relationship across time within the country, you know, we're all getting hap- richer, we're not all getting happier. That essentially is the Eastland paradox. Well, I guess you can say it two ways. It's one, <laughs> economists take it as, you know, doctrine that economic growth improves the human lot and it doesn't seem to be happening. But more than that, too, we do have good evidence that it, it makes a big difference within a society, but we don't have good evidence that it's changing uh, in the way that we expect over time. And, you know, there's a, there's a number of different ways that we can look to explain that. And one of the more interesting ones probably is that it's not just the absolute level of your income that matters, it's your relative income. So there's a kind of an element of social comparison or rivalry. Right. You care in a developed country where hopefully most people sort of have enough uh, to eat and a shelter over their heads, yeah. it's probably at least as important how much you have compared to your neighbours, uh, compared to other members of your family, for example, as it is how much you have in absolute terms. And to the extent that that's true, to the extent that you only care about relative income, economic growth is essentially a zero-sum game. Because if I get happier, everyone else... I get happy, Sorry, if I get richer, it's a zero-sum game. Because yeah. if I get richer... Uh, that ma- makes me happier, but it makes everyone else correspondingly less happy, Unhappy. and we don't end yeah. up ahead. Yeah. Oh no! Oh um, no! <laughs> yeah. So keeping up with the Joneses is uh, part of the problem, right? This is it's subjectively trying to kind of measure yourself against other people. I'm interested in whether that is also the case 
in kind of developing countries. So you say, you know, there's this pretty much flat, if you look at cross-sectionally, different countries, different income levels and happiness. You know, income going up doesn't seem to improve happiness. But whether in those developing countries you get the same thing. So within a a developing country, you get that strong gradient in happiness with income. Do, Do you know, do we find that? Is that... I get the sense I should have prepped for that question. I mean, <laughs> one one thing that's interesting is that people don't do a lot of this work mm. in developing countries. So I think in developing countries, people are more inclined to look at, say, the Millennium Development Goals and yeah. say, actually, we need people to have enough to eat. We need them to have education. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a whole, a whole range of sort of objective factors. And then more important, uh, equally, addressing those almost certainly is addressing the issues that happiness. people have with happiness. Yeah. Right? People are going to become happier through doing those things. So uh, I suspect that I could dig out a chart that says that actually in a developing country it does make more of a difference when everyone gets richer, but I would, I'd have to go and find sure. the data for that. And so thinking, uh, that's a kind of broader picture of the happiness economics is what people have done from the 70s, I guess, looking at these relationships and over time within countries and by different kind of groups within a country. But thinking a bit more specifically about your own research, um, we do have... As you mentioned, you know, there's some really good data on people's happiness. And part of that is your responsibility for your uh, mappiness project. People might have heard of this, but uh, can you tell us about this, uh, this amazing data and how that came about and what you did? Sure. And in a sense, so if we say mid-70s is when this kind of project sort of reignites in economics. Actually, you can kind of see mappiness almost as going back a uh, hundred years or so, you know, Edgeworth actually in the in the late 1800s was talking about a hedonometer. You know, wouldn't it be incredible if we could monitor people's emotions from moment to moment? And you know, it's an incredibly poetic passage about you know the needle jumping up in kind of joy and heading down in, in despair. And that's essentially what we try and create in mappiness. We sort of create this sort of momentary measure of how people are feeling. So this came about uh, when I was doing my PhD at LSE. Uh, first half of the PhD. Uh, fairly standard stuff, web surveys, how satisfied you feel with your life and so on. Yeah, that was okay. And then the iPhone came out and then apps became available for the iPhone. I can't really trace what the Eureka moment was, but it suddenly seemed like a really obvious thing to do to figure out, using this new technology, how people are feeling in the moment. Because my, my focus in the PhD was looking at natural environments. Right, We want to know whether people are happier at the coast, up mountains, in grassland, in forest than they are in cities. And that's a question that people have looked at using sort of much less detailed data. So asking people how they feel in general, uh, figuring out where they live, uh, seeing if those things are related. And sometimes they are related, but it's quite difficult to be confident that there aren't all kinds of other confounders that also vary by space, you know, property prices and goodness knows what else. Whereas with this data, we can ask people in the moment how you feel and we can use the GPS from the phone to figure out objectively where they are. So we're not sort of stuck saying how nice is it where you are and how happy are you? And then, you know, optimistic people say, yeah, both of those are great. And pessimistic people say both of those are bad and you don't know how they relate. We've got really good objective environmental data with this subjective data on top. And you've got the same, so it's the same person as well. So you kind of know whether it's just, you know, that person's always happy. Uh, You can actually see within a person... Exactly, the environment changes. So on average, people do about 60 responses. And exactly like you say, you only have to use the variation within individuals. So you know that that particular person is happier up a mountain than when they are in a city. It's not just uh, the example in London that I was like, is, you know, people in Buckingham Palace Gardens are happier than average. Might be the gardens, might be the kind of people that you find in Buckingham Palace Gardens (laughs) who've got other reasons to be happy. But we know that's not the case because we can follow people and, and check how their happiness varies according to their environment and, of course, according to lots of other influences uh, from day to day. So something, uh, they've got their phone in their pocket and then at a certain point they get a ping and they, after what, 
fill out their happiness and say what they're doing, something like this? Yeah, so it's sort of a 30-second survey. They kind of rate their happiness on a kind of slider from not at all to extremely, and we treat that as kind of zero to 100. And then they tell us a few things that we want to control for. So you know, if we think that people are happier in the park where it's grassy, yeah. sure, but maybe it's a sunny Sunday afternoon, they're with their mates, they're having a barbecue. So we kind of want to control for as much of that as possible. Um, alongside controlling for that sort of fixed effect of being that person. So yeah, they spend about 30 seconds. While they're responding, we take their GPS location, and then all of that gets sent back to the server. And the individual also gets a little bit of feedback about what their responses say, you know, where they're happiest, who they're happiest with, and so on. We try not to give them anything that's sort of related to our hypothesis, but they get sure. a bit of feedback. And I think anecdotally, you know, they, they develop a bit of an intuition. So one of the things that we find is actually by doing this, people become about five percentage points happier right. over the course of about six right. weeks, or at least they report being five percentage points happier, um, oh, which right. is nice, you know. It mm. yeah. makes ethical approval <laughs> yeah, easier in the future yeah, too. But it's, it's a nice yeah, impact. Is that, is, that, is that because they're sort of self-reflecting upon the happiness a little bit more and they're kind of, you know, they're actually engaging with their own sort of, dare I say, emotions and sort of stopping to consider what it is they're doing at that point in time in life. I think so. I mean, actually, it would be worth doing some qualitative research with these people, and that's sort of not my thing. But, I mean, anecdotally, yeah. I think so. People have said to me, oh, I figure out that I'm never outdoors, that I'm always at work, that I'm never happy when I'm doing X. So, yeah, there is an element where people learn a bit about themselves by doing this. No, that's good. And that's good. And thinking about some of the findings, I understand that... Uh, how do we say, you know, have an intimate moment with a partner scores pretty highly, which is perhaps what we would expect. I mean, there's a, there's a question there that might be a situation in which someone's looking over your shoulders. And that wasn't originally one of the questions that we had in there, actually, because we sort of based this on the sort of standard time use surveys. And right. Have this very nebulous category of sort of private activities. Private um, activities. We had a lot of emails <laughs> saying, look, <laughs> there's something I need to tell you about here. So, uh, OK, we added it in. OK. And, and that, as you say, does turn out to be by a distance, by some distance, the happiest that's, activity. That that's, well, that's good to know. And what about so working, studying? That comes pretty much towards the bottom, right? Yes, so it um, depends exactly what else you put in the regression, but certainly in some models, that's second from bottom, that's second only to being ill in bed. So oh, that, that kind of gap, ill in bed to intimacy, is sort of the, the range that we've got. Oh, and, really? Um, okay. well, yeah. Interesting. Uh, so both is near the and work is <laughs> negative. Right. Okay. And age, are there anything in finding on age? I mean, Matt and myself and perhaps you were in this kind of part of the life cycle now, where it's generally, you know, on a downward trajectory, supposedly, in our happiness. Do you find anything interesting there? So we focus mostly on what we can do with the within individual variation. Mm, and, you know, okay. most people do it for six weeks. They don't get, uh, well, yeah. they get six weeks older in six weeks, but that's, that's yeah. not really <laughs> enough. So Hopefully that doesn't have too much. No, effect. I mean, if you want to look at the longer, you know, sort of lifespan yeah. uh, effects, mm. then actually it probably makes more sense to look at a, a representative sample. And in those, I mean, pretty much unanimously, you get this big U shape. And as you say, all three of us are, well, hopefully we're kind of bottoming, bottoming out pretty soon. Um, and <laughs> and we, we might the... head up again. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this U-shape in the kind of mid, mid to late 40s is sort of typical. Because actually this, this reminds me that a few years ago before I became a father for the first time, just you know, when that was imminent, a, a colleague, another economist actually, um, said to me, oh, you know, once you have children, your happiness dips and it never recovers. And I was, I was not, <laughs> not that cheered by that news. But the um, thing is, I find, you know, it's not my subjective experiences, you know, being a parent is can be quite tough, but I would say my happy, happiness is higher than it's ever been. You know, that children contribute mm -hmm. positively. So 
how do we kind of square that? Because this is one of the things with like happiness economics and this kind of subjectivity. My understanding is that my colleague was reporting, you know, um, faithfully to what the evidence suggests that, you know, you get this hit. But is that because maybe my frame of reference changes and, and you know, things will never be the same again? You know, I'll never be child free and kind of footloose and fancy free in that sense again. And maybe that is what is being picked up in that research. What's what's your thoughts on that? It's quite a, it's quite a complicated area. And actually... If I speak to you in a year's time, I hope I'll have kind of harder data because we're actually looking at this. Um, I thought you were going to say you're soon. actually having a baby. What? No, so I am also, I've got a three-year-old and a six-year-old. And I agree with you that that, that comment doesn't entirely square with, with my feeling. Although, you know, if it did, it would be a brilliant example of utility misprediction, right? This is a, a situation where, well, why are people are doing it? I mean, if, yeah. why is your economist friend doing it? Certainly, yeah. you know, it seems like he's made the wrong choice there. And, you know, that's... I guess behaviourally, we know that that's true, but you know, traditionally economics assumes that what we observe people doing is, is only what makes them happiest. Yeah. Um, no, I, mean, I think it, it's clearly not true that that children are just a disaster for well-being. I mean, number one, I think, is counterfactuals, right? People who wanted to have kids but didn't have kids are very unlikely to be made happier by that. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a real problem for, for quite a lot of people. Um, and then I think the other thing that this sort of points up is actually there's sort of different accounts of happiness or well-being. So typically, and certainly kind of, you know, that, that research in the mid-70s started with this question, how satisfied do you feel with your life as a whole? Um, and that's, that's a life satisfaction question. We sometimes call that an evaluative or a cognitive account of well-being. That's not the only one. Typically, economists at least tend to recognize sort of three broad accounts of well-being these days that's one of them the evaluative life satisfaction account but there's also this account about how you feel in the moment and mm-hmm. actually that's what we collect that's in what happiness. you're picking up that's yeah, like the that's the hedonic uh, account of well-being um and then finally there's the eudaimonic account which is about meaning and purpose and is your life okay. worthwhile um, and actually the office for national statistics now ask questions that are aimed at those three um, okay. in their regular representative sample, samples and, and they uh, they publish data on that. Now of course those things in general are all positively correlated. People who have a life made up of pleasant moments tend to be satisfied with that life and also tend to be people who think that their life is meaningful yeah. but there are things where those diverge and I think kids is a great example at least anecdotally <laughs> where yeah. those things can diverge so I think you yeah. know, having kids definitely for me meaning and purpose wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I think hedonically in terms of my my moment-to-moment mood or smiley face <laughs> feeling, as people <laughs> yeah. like to kind of sometimes dismiss it, the main thing you see there is massively increased variance. Yeah, you, I was going to say, that could be very variable. You get big variable. highs, but you also get woken up at 2 a.m. and have to clean up sick. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. You know, that's so, true. And then in terms of life satisfaction, I, mean, I think the research sort of shows that's a kind of ambiguous to negative kind of effect. Now, some of that might just be a kind of, you know, the income crunch of sending your kids to nursery yeah. because we know that income and disposable income, I guess, is, is strongly related to happiness. But no, I mean, I think more research is needed, but I think this sort of points up actually, it really gets gets at what people want in their lives. Um, mm. So there's those three things. And I mean, in terms of the sort of variation in, in kind of mood, there's a possibility that actually people want that variation in itself, that that in itself might be a goal. So they okay. don't, contrary to what you know, economists have 
tended to feel people don't necessarily just want to maximize their average happiness yeah. they might want some sense of you know feeling alive having variation yeah. and, and actually you know we, we've done some research on football supporters i was just thinking uh, that actually, and that, that, that this, potentially gets at that too this is this is what makes the highs good you know because mm-hmm. you've experienced those lows of losing mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. cup final or, or whatever it is and then it just makes those highs all the more sweeter so i, I can definitely see that that would be something uh that is valuable in itself George, a quick question. Um, we live in London, or we, well, at least we are here in London at the moment. Very topical at the moment is air pollution and sort of the effects of that on health and, and, and other measures of well-being. You were one of the first people to really sort of look at that in one of your earlier papers. Do you want to sort of tell us a little bit about your scientific findings there? And do you think that this topic of air pollution in London, but also big cities now, is sort of finally being taken seriously and sort of people are understanding what, what are the actually the real detrimental effects of this on people's lives. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, interestingly, that was sort of that paper was prompted by the fact that I had recently moved from somewhere much greener and quieter to London oh, and really? found that air pollution mm-hmm. made me miserable. Okay. Uh, so, you know, there was a sort of intuition that we might find something. Yeah. Um, that was sort of pre-mappiness, so that's just sort of a standard survey. Ask people their postcode, so we know pretty exactly where they are. Mm. Uh, and then there's great data for London on pollution in, in very small uh, grid cells, so we can relate that after we control for uh, you know other ap- appropriate uh, variables. Uh, we can strongly link the pollution levels to uh, reduction in happiness. And, and, you know... I mean, if anything, I would say that the, the results we get there are almost implausibly high. So you know, it looks like people would be willing to pay a significant proportion of their income to go from the situation that we have, where actually a majority of our respondents breached at least one guideline for annual pollution levels, down to nothing. I think you're right. I think people, I mean, almost almost every week there's a new study that, that shows that air pollution does something that we hadn't yeah. previously appreciated. And in particular, you know, we sort of knew that there are some acute effects on vulnerable people. But, I mean, the really interesting findings, I think, are actually that there are lower-level chronic effects on everybody. So there's a, a fantastic paper by uh, Sefi Roth at LSE that um, shows that people sitting exams in LSE, and, and they have amazing data because they have air pollution monitors in exam rooms. They can follow the same students across different exams, and they find that wow. when air pollution is higher in the exam room on that day, they do worse, and they think they do worse to the tune of sort of 5% of the mark, wow. which wow. You know, could easily put effect. them across a grade boundary. Yeah. Um, well, that's so really, really big health effects, really big cognitive effects. And so it's not surprising, I think, that you would, you would also expect to see that in well-being. Right. And we're actually planning to use the mappiness data to look at this in more detail. And oh, the great thing great. with that is that we've got not just great variation over space, but we've got variation over time. So in principle, you can find the same person in approximately the same place and then look at their happiness according to the, the level of air pollution at that time and place, which is a, it's a great way of trying to disentangle this from all the other things. Because, of course, air pollution also goes along with climate, climatic conditions, for example. You know, yeah. Often hot days have worse weather, but people like hot days, so that kind of is a potential yeah. confounder. So. so that's one obvious avenue through which the happiness research can be playing into public policy and making a positive kind mm-hmm. of difference to policymaking. Um, is that the kind of main route in, uh, do you think, at the moment? Or are there other kind of ways in which your research could be integrated into policy or, or leading to policy change so absolutely i mean one of the way that that we would kind of feed into policy there actually is probably in in using um happiness responses as a way to put a monetary value on various kinds of things that are challenging to value otherwise right air pollution being one of those because actually if you were to i mean you can look at the health effects but but to get a kind of a, you know a full picture 
often what we'd resort to in environmental economics is asking people what they're willing to pay to see better air, air quality or, or how much compensation they would be prepared to accept to, to have a higher level. But of course, people don't necessarily know what the impact of air pollution is on them. Right? You know, if we're having a bad day, we may or may not connect it to the fact that there's high levels of particulates today. So well-being should give us a better handle on that. And actually, the, you know, the, the Treasury's Green Book on policy appraisal and valuation has relatively recently been updated to include some guidance for policymakers on using that kind of data in valuation. Uh, and that can both give you some sort of convergent validity where if it gives you roughly the same result as some other method, that's really reassuring. Yeah. And it can also help you value things that are you know, almost impossible to value in other ways. You know, what's marriage worth, for example? That's, that's a pretty difficult question yeah. to answer, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let alone ask. I think that's very interesting that you mentioned sort of this idea of con- converting something to something, you know, using uh, measures of happiness and well-being to sort of get a price on that. Taking it sort of just slightly higher and sort of thinking about um, things that I've been reading, if we look at, uh, I think it's Bhutan or something, they're using something like gross domestic happiness. I know Sarkozy a couple of years ago commissioned a kind of this idea of, again, gross national happiness, sort of an index. What do you think about that idea, that sort of the highest level, replacing measures of GDP with sort of measures of happiness? Do you think that's something, that, do you think there's traction there or...? Absolutely. I mean, again, I'm not sure I'd say replacing, I would certainly say complementing. I mean, it is true, you know, in in a slightly kind of weasel words kind of way, all other things being equal, economic growth is a good thing. But obviously, all other things don't stay equal. um, Mm. And that's important to keep a handle on. yeah, I, I like the I like the focus on on looking at happiness. You know, are we traveling in the right direction? And actually, you know, from an environmental perspective, it also gives us potentially a way out of this bind that you know traditionally economics welfare is consumption, and we can't keep growing consumption forever on a finite planet. So, yeah. you know, if we can find a way to kind of conceptually decouple doing well from consuming more, that makes the picture for all yeah. of us look a lot rosier, kind of generations ahead. But thinking about kind of future research and what you're working on, so this kind of Mappiness 2.0, I believe, is what your kind of current project is. Is this uh, what you've been talking about, using that kind of time and space variation to look at the environmental effects, or have you got kind of bigger plans for the future of Mappiness? So certainly we could we could do that. I mean, we can do actually a reasonable amount of that with the existing data set because we, we've got sort of 4 million responses from 66,000 people now over several years. So, um, you know, that, that's excellent. Yes, we can always uh, do with, with more data. And so obviously Mappiness 2 can feed into that. Um, other things that we'd like to do with that is go beyond the UK. So the original Mappiness was focused on the UK, mainly for reasons of time and practicality, yeah. to be honest. You know, sure. in retrospect, Perhaps we could have gone wider. Uh, we could certainly look at a range of uh, a wider range of environments that way. Also, we're doing work within organisations, which ties into this. So, having found one of the things that we've also found is that people are extremely unhappy when we're uh, there at work, as, as we yeah. said, you know, second most miserable activity that people report. And so, digging into that a little bit with organisations, with their employees, you know, asking other questions to help understand what it is that causes work to be such a miserable experience for most people. If people want to participate in this, how can they do that? Uh, so they can go to the website mappiness.app and they can currently they can give their email address and we'll let them know when when Mappiness right. 2 is coming out. And we, yeah, we'd love them to be involved in that. Sounds good, especially as you were saying, this is there's some evidence that this makes people more reflective on their happiness and that might be something that 
would make you more happy. So uh, that's right. So so just answering makes you happy. And of course, the other thing I'm happiness to is that uh, this is this is done jointly with. Uh, uh, Nick Begley, who used to work at Headspace, and so we're also trying to give people tools where if they say that they're unhappy, because there are people in happiness who repeatedly tell us that their happiness is really low, and happiness just sort of you know keep it coming, but doesn't doesn't actually do anything specifically to help them. Uh, you know, we can give them potentially a mindfulness practice or a breathing right. exercise or give them other suggestions. Um, so that's yeah. that's the other element of happiness too. Oh, policy matters, making people happier day by day. I think that's what we're aiming for. Yeah, good, George. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. This was Policy Matters. My name is Franz Buscher. And I'm Matt Dixon. And we'll see you again soon with more.